The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with him, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he walked, talked to us on the road while he opened up the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten to third grade, fifth grade, and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the kids zone sign. If this is your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Good morning. Just said one of my favorite lines in the hymns, death in vain forbids him rise. That'll wake you up in the morning. If you're new here, my name is Jared. I'm also on staff here at Restoration Southside. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning. 
We're all coming here looking for hope. Hope. The reason that we're coming here looking for hope is because it's hard out there. I know even this morning as you come here and you look for hope, you're aware of the fact that you still have to get up and leave. And the burdens that you brought into this room, it's, it's scary to think that you'll put them, put them back on as you, as you walk out. Life can do that to us. It can, it can slowly wear away at us, chip away at us until we don't have much hope. That's where we find these two disciples this morning. It's a little bit of a strange Easter text because it doesn't actually have the great moment where the women arrive at the tomb and the tomb is empty and the, the angels are there and they say, why are you here among a place of dead people? He's not dead anymore. Instead, we have this story sort of after the fact. And Luke is the only one who tells this story. Luke is the only one who tells this story. But it's so important. There's three words in this story that are so sad. And as I was preparing for this week, I wanted, I wanted us to linger there just for a moment because it's hard to appreciate the hope found in the text until you have dealt with the sadness and the darkness. Did you hear the words in the text? We had hoped. We had hoped. It's this, this story of these disciples who have begun to follow Jesus, who've begun to see the great things that he's said and the great things that he's done. And there's a stirring among this small group of disciples who starts to actually believe We've been waiting for 400 years for a Messiah. And really the creation has been waiting all the way since Eden. Since Adam fell into sin, we've been waiting and longing for this one who would come and set things right. We had hoped. And now that hope is gone. Maybe there are things in your life this morning. You would finish that sentence a little differently. We had hoped, or maybe I had hoped, that this is what my life was going to be like. I had hoped that I wouldn't experience this pain. I had hoped that I wouldn't experience this loss. I had hoped, and now that hope is gone. Ellie Holcomb says this, a singer and a songwriter, See if it resonates with you. We buried dreams, laid them deep into the earth behind us, said our goodbyes at the grave. But everything reminds us God knows we ache when he asks us to go on. How do we go on? What dreams have you laid deep within the earth? What are the things that you had hoped for? Well, this text is for you this morning. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of it. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Father God, in your kindness, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us this morning?
if you don't just be a long talk and some music and some songs, just be spiritual exercising, scratching at the world, hoping that there's some meaning, there's some hope out there. If you don't move, we lay our hopes deep within the earth. But you love to move. You love to give your spirit to those who believe. And so I'm begging you, and I'm trusting you that you'll send your spirit on this room powerfully this morning, that you'll inhabit my words, that lives that have never encountered the risen Jesus would this morning be shaken to the core and grace and welcomed into the kingdom and lives that have trusted in Jesus but have laid their hopes deep within the earth, would you make their hope alive again? I know that you want to move. I know that you speak. Would you speak today? Is there any chance in all the world, as one of my favorite preachers says, that you might move even this morning? I'm begging you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For those of you who know me as a preacher, you know that I love movies. I can't help but love movies. They speak to me. There's a movie a while back that became famous even though it was an independent film. It's called Little Miss Sunshine. It's probably not for your younger viewers, but you adults can handle it. What's so powerful about the movie Little Miss Sunshine, starred by Steve Carell. Steve Carell, like you've never seen him. It's the story of this very dysfunctional family, broken as they are. And they're all on a long road trip out west because Olive, the sweet, cute little daughter, wants to be in a beauty pageant. And so they're in this Volkswagen bus that doesn't properly work, and they have to push and run alongside it to start it. This dysfunctional family looking for meaning in life. One of the most gripping narratives of the story is the son. Do you remember the son, the teenage son? He's taken a vow of silence. He's this angsty, long-haired teenager, and he's taken this vow of silence, and he reads Frederick Nietzsche, and he says, I am not going to speak again until I fulfill my goal of becoming a naval air pilot. And until I am a fighter pilot, I will never speak again. So throughout the movie, all of these things, these relationships, these events take place, and he says nothing. There's a scene in the bus when Olive and him and the uncle, Steve Carell, are playing this game and looking at cards, flashcards, and playing a game, asking each other questions, and all of a sudden, it occurs to Steve Carell, the uncle, That the son, the one who's taken this vow of silence, he can't see colors. And it washes all over Steve Carell's face. That the reason that this young man has taken a vow of silence is so that he can be a naval fighter pilot. And now he knows quietly to himself he will never be that. Well, the teenage boy sees it all over Carell's face and writes, What? What? And Carell's hesitant. He doesn't want to tell him. And he keeps pointing to the paper. What? And Carell tells this boy who's 
poured himself into silence. You can't be a fighter pilot if you're colorblind. And all of a sudden, it starts to wash over this angsty teenage boy. And he starts shaking. And he's about to burst. And he starts hitting himself. And they pull the bus over. And he gets out. And he walks down far off from the family. And it just erupts from him. And he just screams at the top of his lungs. Because his dream of being a fighter pilot is dead. He had hoped. And now that hope is gone. I wonder if you're familiar with that in your own life. Is there something in your life that you had hoped and now that hope is gone? Let's take 10 seconds of silence. I want you in silence to to finish that phrase. I had hoped. And I'm going to give you 10 seconds just to think through that and answer it silently to yourself. I had hoped. I had hoped I'd get married. I had hoped I'd have a baby. I had hoped I was in a great marriage. I had hoped my love would choose me and instead my love chose someone else. I hoped my adult adult children would follow Jesus. I had hoped that I would have made something of myself. I had hoped that none of my family members would get a disease. I had hoped and now that hope is gone. You see, you can actually empathize with these disciples. They've, they've watched Jesus. They've followed him. They've, they've chased him around. They've seen his great deeds. They've listened to his great words. And they think now everything's finally going to be different. And then they watch him lay him in a tomb, burying him in the earth. They had hoped. There's two things I want you to see from this first section of the text And it's that they have dashed hopes and closed eyes. Dashed hopes and closed eyes. Well, let's look at the text together. Dashed hopes and closed eyes. Follow along with me. This is from Luke 24. Very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they said, Stood still. You get the image, they're all walking. And then he says, What is this? What are you guys talking about? And they just stopped stood still and were sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these, thi- in these days? And he said to them, What things? Imagine the irony. He is about to preach an almost gospel to Jesus himself. And Jesus says, What things? 
And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I want you to listen to that. They are talking to him. They tell him a very detailed version of everything that he's done. Then they say that the women went to the tomb and they're looking at Jesus and they say, but him they did not see. You see, their eyes had been kept from recognizing him. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it because of the suffering that they had been through, because of their dashed hopes. That's what keeps us from seeing him. That's what keeps us from eyes of faith is having dashed hopes. You had hoped something. And I want you to see this. This is from one of my favorite commentators. He says this, they had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But instead it was the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. You see, that's what causes your hope to be dashed, is that maybe you draw near to Christ, maybe he is your king and your savior, but the experiences of life, the difficulties, the loss, the suffering, it leads you to think that something must not be true, something must not be whole, or maybe you just don't get it. But all of this, he was supposed to keep my life from suffering. And what he's showing here through Jesus is that the kingdom of Jesus moves through suffering. Through suffering. And I know that's hard medicine. I don't say that lightly. Especially on Easter morning. I don't say that lightly that your life will be full but transformed through suffering. Of course it's going to be difficult. But the suffering that you experience helps you to greater appreciate Jesus. It helps you to soften your heart before God. Teaches you to pray, to be dependent causes you to be compassionate with others. It causes you to want to know that others are coming into the faith. You will be like him in his suffering so that you too will know the power of his resurrection. Don't you see, even your suffering will be transformed. Your dashed hopes will open you up to a life you never dreamt possible. And how do I know that? Well, first of all, there's the heaven aspect of it. The, the grave in vain forbids him rise. And it will forbid you in vain to rise as well. The Bible says, No eye has seen or no mind has conceived the things that God has planned for those who love him. That means you can't even fantasize about how good heaven's going to be. Every day better than the next. Everything lost returned to you. Every relationship at its fullest 
most whole, most life-giving, every love at max capacity. No more shame, no more sin, no more tears, no more heartache. And it's all coming for you. No eye has seen the mind that things, or mind has conceived the things that God has planned for those who love him. Those of you who are resting and trusting in Christ, the empty tomb is your promise of heaven. But not just that. The empty tomb is the promise that through your own suffering, through your own cross-bearing, you will be transformed and you will be a part of the transformation of all things. Suffering is your call. And I tell you that because that is your experience. I just want you to be validated in it. He suffered. You will suffer. The world hated him, it will hate us too. It is a biblical concept, not a health and wealth gospel. Suffering is your call, it is the family motto. But here, friends, suffering will not get the last word. Your suffering will transform you. So you have heaven to wait on you, to wait for you. And then you have your suffering, which transforms you. That in your suffering, have you ever met a Christian that really suffered? They're gentle and compassionate and thoughtful and loving. And they want you to heal and they want you to feel seen and they want others to know Christ. Your suffering will open you up to real life. And we miss that. We think the suffering is the worst thing about us. The worst thing about our stories. And we miss the fact that the suffering leads to the empty tomb. One commentator said this. It's it's possible to look at the true source of all joy and still not be able to see it. They are talking to Jesus of Nazareth about Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've been in the Sunday schools and been in the camps, been in the small group, and you come each Sunday looking at the true source of all joy, Jesus of Nazareth, and you still can't see it. Well, if that's you, I encourage you this day, not another day, this day, beg that God would open your eyes. The theme of our Easter sermon series has been open their eyes. You see here, they can't see it. They had been kept from seeing it. And in the same way that we can't see him, unless God himself by his Holy Spirit opens your eyes. That's why I have such compassion on those who don't know Jesus. Do you know why? It's not their fault they can't see him. God himself has to come and graciously and gently send his spirit and open their eyes. And if that's you today, say, God, open my eyes, I'm begging you. But there are some of you who can't see him and haven't encountered him. But there are those others of you who have seen him and have encountered him. But since you had hoped in something else, Your faith seems dry or cold or distant. You've thought, I had hope for more than this. 
And now that hope is gone. You've seen him, but you haven't let the reality of the resurrection overwhelm your problems. These guys have even heard about the resurrection. They've heard from the women, and it still doesn't open their eyes. And then Jesus gives them what has to have been the best sermon ever. Jesus, the Word of God, teaching the Word of God so that they might in turn see him, the Word of God. As a pastor, you would have just longed to hear Jesus open up the Scriptures. Did you hear it in there? He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think it's pretty interesting there. And it matters to us today that he points them to the Bible. Now remind, remember for a second, the living Christ risen from the dead is in their midst. And so that they will understand how to know God, he points them to the Bible. Ultimately, that's what a pastor is doing every Sunday morning, is that he is saying that the way to know and experience the living God in Christ, the risen one, is to look back at the Bible and to see how everything, every theme, every storyline, every character, every every great moment and every hard moment it all preps you for Jesus of Nazareth Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way every story whispers his name well, we read the Bible because it, we don't want to feel guilty oh if I'll read a little bit more then I won't feel so guilty or if I read a little bit more it'll show self-discipline it, it means that we could use the Bible to feel better about ourselves or feel less bad about ourselves what they're saying here is that the Bible, friends, isn't even about you. John 5, 39 says this. Jesus himself says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Luke 24, he says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's like, hey, that book you've been reading, you missed the main character. Tim Keller says it this way. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who innocently slain has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, now I know you love me 
because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb, the true temple, the, tr the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible isn't about you. That's what Keller says. And Jesus takes the Bible and he opens it up and what must have been the greatest sermon of all time just points to how Every theme and every storyline and every character ultimately points them to one him. The one who would come and live a perfect life though we sin and would die a gruesome death so we'd never have to. And not only that, he would burst the tomb. You see, your biggest problem in life, friends, actually isn't that hope that you laid in the ground. It's not. I know it feels like it is. Your biggest problem in life is actually your sin, your desire to make yourself the king, to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And that sin actually leads you to death. Meaning somebody's got to pay for that sin. And the glory of the cross is that Jesus says, I'll pay for the sin. You did bad I did good, you can have my goodness and I'll take your badness. I'll take the cross so that you get heaven. And not only that, I'm going to burst the tomb so that your sin will never say another word about you so that your problem, death, won't hold anything over you. That's what Jesus is telling them is I'm the one you've been waiting for. You needed a savior and I'm him. You needed a king and I'm him. Calvin said this, if one were to sift thoroughly through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would, does not draw us and bring us to Jesus. I know you sometimes have closed eyes. I know that you had hoped. But this is where Jesus comes and says, all of your hopes, all of your dreams aren't nearly good enough for what you have coming for you. It's not nearly good enough. No eye has seen, nor mind has conceived of the things God has for those who love him. And their eyes are opened. He gives them the sermon of a lifetime, and they still don't see him. They still don't see him.
So they finally get to where they're going. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They don't see him, they don't see him, they don't see him. And then he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and they saw him. At this church, we've been studying Mark Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, you know what he does? He takes bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And 15,000 people eat. And a chapter later, he's with 4,000 people, and he takes bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. There's this sense as you're watching through the Gospels that when the disciples saw Jesus pick up bread, they're like, hold on, everybody. Something amazing is about to happen. We don't know if it's the way that he talked with God with such fondness and intimacy that they recognized him. We don't know if it was the fact that he said a blessing a certain kind of way because he himself is God. But what we know is when they saw that, their king had taken bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. They saw him. Friends, have you seen him? Have you seen him? If you've not, don't go one more day. Don't leave this place. There is an urgency. Now is the time. It's easy to think someday I'll get around to this. Someday when things slow down. Someday, someday out there. That's the time. That's when I'll do it. No, today's the day. Don't go forward one more time. Have you insisted? Did you hear him? This is this weird part of the text where it says he acted as if he were going further. We're supposed to think Jesus was like, hey, I think I'm going to keep going. No, the point was is he was actually going to go forward. He had other people to reveal himself to, other people to show that he was alive. Jesus was going to move on from them, and they insist. They say, stay with us, stay with us. One of the commentators said this, if they had not invited him, he would have passed on and they would have forfeited the inexpressible privilege of discovering that it was their risen Lord who had been with them and had instructed them. Invite Jesus into your moments. Invite Jesus into these places that you had hoped but now have laid it deep within the earth. Invite him in. Insist on it. Stay with me, Jesus. Stay with me. They're telling me that you're with me. They're telling me that you're for me. Stay with me, Jesus. Stay with me. And he's delighted to answer. He stays with them. He not only stays with them, he actually provides for them, provides for them meaning for all of their lostness. Their eyes are open. Are your eyes open? Some of you need them open for the very first time, and some of you need to look into the deepest part of your tragedy and say there's a chance the story's not over yet. I had laid my hopes deep in the ground, but there's a chance, there's just a chance that the story's not over yet. And then the messengers speak. Listen to this. 
Then they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. When they get news this good, they get up and they go and tell others. Now there's, there's a cool irony in this. Do you remember where they were coming from? They're on this long journey and the stranger come and meets them. They're on a seven mile walk back from Jerusalem. And they get in long enough just to sit down, have the host break the bread, vanish from their sight, and then stand up and walk seven miles back to Jerusalem. Why? Why not wait till the morning? Why not just sleep on it? Because when you have good news that good, you can't wait. You've got to go tell someone. Friends, for you who have taken that news for yourself, who are you telling? I know you have to be careful and thoughtful and restrained and nuanced and clever, but who are you telling? Who are you telling? If, if the news is as good as we say it is, it would cause you to get up and walk seven miles to let people know. Who are you telling? And maybe you don't tell anybody, not because of any other reason than you're just not impressed with the news. But what this means is that the resurrection is your guarantee that you will never pay for your sin. The resurrection is your guarantee that you will never pay for your sin. As one of my favorite preachers says, he says, Jesus goes into the ground to pay. Jesus hangs on the cross to pay, goes into the ground to pay. And he's paying for the sins of those who would put their trust in him. And when he comes out of the ground, it's guaranteed that that sin is paid in full. That sin will never be held against you. The things that you've done in the daylight, the things that you've done in the quiet of the dark, it will never be held against you. How can I know? Because the tomb is empty. Because Christ has paid for all of those and paid in full so much that he rises from the dead. The resurrection is your guarantee that no one will ever hold you accountable for your sin. That the payment is complete. Again, Tim Keller says this. You know what this, you know what the resurrection is? Resurrection, Jesus Christ is walking proof that you will miss nothing. The resurrection means you're going to miss nothing, nothing. It's all coming in the future and it's going to be unimaginably wonderful. That's what he's saying. So those dreams that you've laid in the ground, you said, I had hoped. Let me just encourage you, hope a little longer. Maybe the story's not over. Maybe the suffering that you're experiencing is actually not just, not just part of the story. It's actually that the story will go straight through that, that the resurrection itself will transform it. What the resurrection is calling you to is to be a lens, to look at your suffering and to say, I know it's bad, I know it's hard, I know it's ugly, but this resurrection promises me that the story's not over yet and it's about to get unimaginably good. Whatever you're facing, the story's not over yet. 
The empty tomb promises you that there's another way to view it. You just can't see it yet. we close here. Joel Izzy is a celebrated author, and he tells this story about an older gentleman. Joel Izzy was 12 years old, and he was on this rickety bus in California, and he was the only one on the bus, and all of a sudden he sees this old man come up to the bus side, and he's walking with the cane, and Joel thinks this is going to take forever. And the old man steps slowly onto the bus and asks the driver how much it's going to be, and the driver says, you're a senior citizen, sir, obviously it'll only be 25 cents, and Joel watched as the man went, Five, six, and Joel said he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life on this bus, that his grandchildren would be born in the back of this bus. Finally, the old man pays the 25 cents and slowly with his cane backs up and sits down right next to Joel. It's a whole empty bus and he sits down right next to Joel and he pulls out an orange from his bag and he says, you see my orange? And Joel thinks, oh, it's going to be one of those bus rides. He says, you know what this orange reminds me of? This reminds me of the war. And just to make conversation, Joel says, oh, really? You were a part of the war? Where, where were you in the war? And the old man says, a little place called Auschwitz. And he said, what they don't tell you about Auschwitz, what you don't read about in your little books is that everything in Auschwitz is black and white and gray. There's no color. It's all black and white. The guards wore black uniforms and black tiny shiny boots, excuse me, and you could see your face in the black shiny boots and you'd see a white pale face. And on the Jews' skin there were numbers. He shows him his arm and he says it, it looks blue now, but it was black when they first burned it in. Everything was black and white and gray. The fence was black. The sky was gray. The snow would fall and one day it would be white and then the ashes from the smokestacks would turn it all gray. And the food there was even gray. That was their life. They worked, ate gray soup, and tried to stay warm. He said it one day while working along the fence, this man saw something. So he's in Auschwitz and he's working along the fence and he sees something and he can't help but to stop and stare. And he looks right down and he sees an orange. An orange that one of the guards must have dropped. And he quickly takes it and he hides it. Because he knew the soldiers would kill him if they found him with the guard's food. And he hid it in a crack in the wall in his cell. And that night everyone goes to bed. He took it out the crack in the wall and he would hold this orange and he would just roll it around in his hands and he would look at the bright color and he would scratch at the skin of the orange and just smell the citrus. He hadn't eaten anything but potato water for six months. He wanted to eat the orange but he knew if he did it'd be over and gone and done. But he remembers this as he smelled that orange he wasn't in Auschwitz anymore. He was back in Palestine where his cousin grew oranges and it was the smell of freedom. When he opened his eyes, he was back in Auschwitz. But he couldn't eat the orange. He said he was going to save it for a hard day. He said, you don't have to wait too long for a hard day in Auschwitz. It was selection day and he had watched the guards use a bayonet to send half of the people to the smokestack and half of the people back to the barracks. 
And he said that night was the night. He couldn't wait anymore. And he gathered a small group of people in the middle of the night. He woke them up and said, come here with me. Come here with me. And he showed them the orange. And they gasped. They had only seen white and black and gray. And he passed it around the room. And they all felt it and smelled it. Finally, he carefully opened the orange. And they shared it together. The man said he's never tasted anything so sweet in his whole life. That orange was the taste of hope. He said he kept the orange peels and scratched them at night and smelled them each night. He said eventually the war ended and he himself was rescued. He said that orange had saved his life. The glimmer of color, the fresh scent, the sweet taste was just enough hope to keep him going. Friends, you don't walk around the world in your suffering and in your loss and in your difficulties holding an orange. You walk around this place with the reality of an empty tomb that you can smell it, you can, you can de- dream deeply about it, you can embrace it, you can hold on to it, that no matter what you're facing, you have a lens to view all of life with, and it's the empty tomb that things are about to get so much better. Hold on to it. Give you just enough hope to keep you going. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, enliven hearts that so need you. And hearts that know you but are limping and battered, weary, and robbed of hope, would you, in your kindness, remind your people of the empty tomb and that it's all about to get so much better. We need you to work among us to remind us of this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Your kindness, remind your people of the empty tomb and that it's all about to get so much better. We need you to work among us to remind us of this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.